If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to the first completely unnecessary podcast for the new year, 2017, an odd-numbered year, which historically have been worse years in my life, but that aside, you know, my name's Pat Country. I'll be flying solo on today, January 3rd, 2017. Uh, we'll be talking about the latest uh, retro gaming news, uh, video game news that's modern, eyes a little bit, uh, a little bit Q&A, we're going to go into a little bit of other pop culture a little bit it's new year there's not a lot of news going on but you know i gotta get this podcast you guys are gonna gonna beat me with sticks uh Ian's still feeling under the weather so that's why it's just me here again happy new year everyone hope you had a great christmas uh, however you celebrate the holidays like i said last time you know christmas doesn't have to be you know a religious festival but it, it's all about celebrating life and friends and family and eating way too much food i'll be working off the next you know, 14 pounds of, 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 of weight that I gained from Italian pastries and other forms of carbohydrates. I'll be working those off for the next few months. I'm afraid to go on the scale for like three weeks after Christmas for the most part. Um, I got all the struffoli, all the cannolis, all that good stuff. Um, I think I had, uh, yes, stuff. Uh, no, we had ravioli, uh, for Christmas day. And then, yeah, I don't want to get into that again. It's just, it's just, it's absolutely nuts. It's like, it, you shouldn't be it shouldn't be allowed to have that much good food and that sort of truncated sort of a uh, space of time. It's just, it, we're, we're spoiled. We have too much food. What can I say? Um, so some updates of things going on. No sponsors this week. The sponsors have to get their act together to start funding the CU podcast again, maybe in a couple of weeks, but, um, the new NES Punk video delayed more than I want it to be, but with the holidays and me feeling awful, uh, and doing everything else, it, it, there's no, there's just, uh, uh, there's no way around it. it. Has to be delayed. I'm actually feeling under the weather now. I, I'm, I, if, you, if you're watching the uh, the video portion, uh, it's not rouge I have on it. Um, it's not that I'm embarrassed. I have like red under my eyes and a little my forehead. I have like broke out in like mini hives a couple of days ago. I, after I went to the zoo with my girl, uh, we came back home. By the way, the San Diego Zoo kicks ass. Just because they keep adding animals and new new parts of the park, and they do great work, and they actually do conservation and help out the animals, especially the San Diego Zoo. They brought the California condor uh, back from, literally back from the brink of extinction, when there was like a handful of the fucking birds left. Uh, and now they're back into the wild, like, you know, 25 years later. Anyway, they just keep adding new stuff. Like, they have a like little, little cute little dwarf mongoose little guy, and there was like a dozen of them running around with the, uh, the hyraxes. Or like these little like round like rodent type larger creatures in the rocks. Anyway, and they put them with the clip springers, which are like these like like little deer type animals that go on rocks. Anyway, they're always adding new stuff. But went went to the went to the zoo, had a great time. But I come back had a massive headache, and then by like Friday, uh, by by that was on Monday. So by Monday night, excuse me, by Sunday night, um, early Monday, just red all over my face, just like. Like just that's rare for me to have something like that have. I don't break out uh, with anything, and that's just 
and it's happened one other time before, like three, four months ago. And uh, I think my body's just physically breaking down. <laughs> as as mentally uh, tough as I try to be to get stuff done, I think eventually it all just catches up. Uh, the stress, just being overworked and just doing too much um, and just trying to get stuff out there. Um, so I, th- I think I'm just at the point now where uh, I know I have to take it easier. Um, in 2017, there's no way I could keep, possibly keep up the pace that I've been on for literally the past two years. Not even past year, the past two years I've been on a breakneck sort of pace with the amount of work I've been doing and everything else. And uh, this is going to be the year where I sort of take a step back and I and I sort of do things, I think, smarter, more efficiently, where I can actually start to enjoy my life a little bit more again because I haven't been enjoying life that much um, the past probably uh, easily the past two years I have been enjoying life. That's and, and this isn't woe is me. I'm just stating the obvious, uh, at least to myself, that life hasn't been the most fun experience uh, for me in general. Um, but that's but that's my choice. I, I you put into it what you put into it. So I'll be working smarter this year, trying to relax more. Uh, I'll, I'll probably doing less conventions I'll, from 12 down to probably seven or eight. And then I'll be reasonable. Uh, I think in a reason, a more reasonable amount. Speaking of events before everyone gets, holy shit, Pat's going to, you know, just off himself. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. It, it's just that you, know, you come to realization at some point that you have to, you, as much as you want to try to be, have success in your life and, um, you know, be able to afford nice things and build up a career. At the same time, you need to balance that with enjoying the life that you're trying to, you know, uh, lead at the same time. You you really have to do that or else what the hell's the point, really? And that's where I think I'm sort of going to try to find the more balance in 2017. But I will be at the SoCal Richard Gaming Expo February 4th and 5th in Ontario, California. And you can uh, use promo code see you podcast and save 10% on your tickets. And I'll be there. Ian, if he's healthy, will be there. Frank will be there. Gerard, the completionist pro Jared, Andre Meadows, a black nerd comedy, Billy and Jay, the lovable, uh, affable game chasers, Phil Moore from Nick arcade, um, and, uh, games 31. And I, one or two more guests, my one may be still to be announced and they'll have consoles. The largest legend of Zelda game and, mer- and merchandise collection in the world will be there. Um, There'll be some rare games on display, rare video games on display, uh, dozens of arcade units to play, all free play, tournaments, the whole nine yards, panels. So come out there. Go to SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com to pre-order your tickets. Again, use promo code CUPODCAST to uh, save. And speaking of not having any sponsors, well, if you want a sponsor on the CU Podcast, uh, it's not a bad sign that there's no sponsors now. It's just that, again, the money's got to get going with the new year again. It's the nature of the business. Uh, send me an email, see you podcast at the punk effect.com. If you're interested in being a sponsor of the podcast, uh, the ultimate NES app was well, technically called ultimate guide, ultimate game guide for NES. It's on iOS. It's supposed to be on Android. By the time you listen to this, uh, at this point, I don't know what to say. I can only tell you what my app developer tells me. Uh, I'm not coding the app myself. I'm doing work on the app. I'm acquiring, uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle so to speak i'm doing sort of research for the app and, and putting together material but i don't actually do the coding so if my app developer says the app's supposed to be out a week ago on wednesday which is what he originally told me that's what i tell the world and when it's not out I, I, I look like a fool but i don't have a choice so the app should be out on android devices any day now um so be on the lookout for that and it's doing well on ios and after the android one's out we're going to 
get the 1.1 revision out, which is going to add a lot uh, more little little touches that are missing from it right now. And then we'll we'll move towards uh, version 1.2, which will add even more. And then at that point, it'll be probably at a pretty good state where then we could talk about developing for the rest of the year. But uh, it's getting good reviews. It's getting some decent downloads. But you, you Android users, I'm not forgetting you because there's more of you than iOS users. Uh, that's for sure. And was I saying? Yeah, new NES Punk video. Uh, I finished writing it. I recorded the audio. I got to do the video portion of that um, maybe tomorrow if my face is like a like a red apple. Uh, I was going to say that's redundant, but no, there's apples that are gold and green as well, so it's not redundant. So anyway, um, so this is going to be a podcast where I will talk about things besides video games and, and even besides movies because there isn't a huge amount going on, and plus. Um, I, I do want to experiment, and I'll talk about this more later. I, I will be doing a second podcast this year, uh, starting probably more sooner than later. Um, it's going to be uh, the podcast with Pat Contry, and it's going to be non-video game related. It's going to be just general life stuff. It's going to be talking about maybe pol- political stuff a little bit, social stuff. Um, things of that nature, maybe more comedic stuff that's happened in my life. I can experiment more, talk about life in general, pontificate on, you know, my experiences, sort of philosophies, uh, and things that really interest me that, that don't really fall under the banner of the CU podcast. So the CU podcast, uh, as far as I know, isn't going to go away. Um, but this is going to be something that I'll be doing mostly audio only, and I'll probably record it uh, once or twice a week. And then I might have a new YouTube channel for it, but it'll mainly be an audio podcast because because I want to do non-gaming stuff in 2017. I think it's time. I'm a little bit older, maybe not as wise, but I think I'm I'm getting a little restless when it comes to just doing being pigeonholed, not pigeonholed by you guys, but for myself, just doing video game content or just pop culture content. I think I can provide. I I think I can provide more outside of that, and even if I. Even if that's not true, I'm at least going to try to do that. And I, and I think this podcast won't be an experiment with that, but I'm going to do some content that isn't necessarily going to fall into the realm of video games and, and movies. But stuff that we've talked about in the past a little bit. Um, which will bring us to uh, the first topic. Um, I woke up Saturday morning. Friday night, I was like out like a, like a, like a, like a rock. Out like a lamp? What's the expression nowadays? I don't know. I feel like garbage. Um, but I woke up to discover that Ronda Rousey at UFC 207 was absolutely destroyed by the Bantamweight champion Amanda Nunes. So Amanda Nunes had defeated Misha Tate, who had defeated Holly Holm for the title, who I defeated last November at UFC 193, Ronda Rousey. So Ronda Rousey was a phenom. Just because, I mean, she really brought female mixed martial arts into the spotlight. Um, she went to Dana White and helped get it into the UFC. Before that, it was with the, the competitor Strike Force. Um, and then she said, hey, Dana, this should be something. And he, he basically signed on to it. And then she was one of the biggest people in the sport for years. And arguably the biggest person. Now it's Conor McGregor by far for the past year. Uh, and then guys like John Jones constantly getting suspended or fucking up their career. Uh, so that aside, Rousey was at least number one or number two in the sport for the past three years. Uh, star. The the problem though with the Holly Holm fight 
and then with this Amanda Nunes fight is that it shows it shows much to the chagrin of Ronda Rouser and her fans is that the sports kind of passed her by. It's evolved past her. And I'll get into reasons why in a second. But Rousey showed up determined. She was in the shape of her the shape of her life. She was as ripped as probably we've seen her. And in all the previews building up to it, I'm like, oh, Ronda's back and she's serious about this fight. And, you know, she's out for, maybe not out for blood, but, you know, she's taking this deadly seriously because she was humiliated. She felt humiliated. She fell into a depression after she lost to Holly Holm last November. And she even said I was kind of, she was kind of suicidal following the loss. And that was her first loss in uh, in mixed martial arts. So uh, it was a 48-second fight. Shockingly one-sided fight. You could even say it was more one-sided than the loss to Holly Holm last year. Amanda Nunes... Uh, outclassed her in striking, which is what Holly Holm did last year as well. And that was always the big sort of question mark to Ronda Rousey is that she had big holes in her striking game. And Amanda Nunes, uh, Nunes uh, she's a powerful striker. I, uh, according to other people who know more than me about it, she's arguably the most powerful striker in, in, of the women. Uh, so she was hitting with pinpoint accuracy and just not, I mean, by the third or fourth punch landed, Rousey was in trouble. The fight was basically over, and it was stopped on the TKO 40, 48 seconds in. Um, and Rousey was, was shocked, I think. But I think the writing's on the wall that th- this is it, because it's it's hard to go from uh, getting uh, destroyed in, in, a, in a fight, losing your championship, saying, oh, I'm, I'm coming back, and I'm, now I'm for real, and getting destroyed again. I think that's it for her, and it should be it for her, for a couple reasons. One, I... I, I she she has a career outside of MMA waiting for her. She can do movies. Talked about her being in the the Roadhouse remake. She's been in, in stuff already. She was in what Expendables three, so she can she can go over the same way Gina Carano uh, has gone from mixed martial. Gina Carano was kind of like the first Ronda Rousey, but on a smaller scale. I mean Gina, Gina Carano. If, if you saw Deadpool, uh, that was Gina Carano in, in Deadpool, the big huge ass movie. She was a mixed martial artist. And now she's an actress as well. Um, so she can do that as well, but this hurts R- Rousey's value because it's tougher to sell someone as a, as a badass when they get destroyed twice in a row, like in like an embarrassing fashion like that. But she got paid three million dollars for this fight, so I mean that's a I'll get beat up for a minute for three million dollars. Sure, why not? Uh, so w- what I also want to talk about though is that uh, just the lead up to the fight was just so weird, just because it was all focused on Rousey. Uh, and she's back, she's out for blood, and the champion, Amanda Nunes, there was, like, nothing about her, and she, that's kind of a shame, just because this is a really uh, good a really good fighter, obviously, she's a champ, Amanda uh, Nunes, really good fighter, but also very, sort of, has a, has a good amount of charisma for herself, and if they promoted it promoted her as well in the lead-up, I think this would have been a much bigger fight, because Rousey herself didn't even do press the week of. Didn't do interviews, didn't talk to anyone, so I, I don't think this probably was as, as successful a pay-per-view as it probably could have been, because you, you gotta promote both people in a fight, not just one, and especially when you're ignoring the champion, which is the weirdest thing ever. So, but but the weird thing about this is that uh, Rousey is represented, her, her agency that represents her management agency is actually owned by the UFC now. So there might have been a conflict of interest there to make sure that we push pump up Rousey as much as possible. Just some weird stuff going on. But it, when you change your philosophy 
at all and sort of not like like the, you, when you're a prize fighter uh i i think it's dangerous to sort of change your mold that drastically what rousey was always sort of a, a bullyish sort of character never really showed a lot of respect to her opponents which always bothered me you know she basically called holly home you know a bitch uh in the lead up to the holly home fight which just not really in the spirit of martial arts that's a whole other conversation but to go from just the cocky, I mean, hell, her her nickname was Rowdy for Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was the biggest sort of trash talker, one of the biggest trash talkers in pro wrestling. To go from that to I'm deadly serious, here I come, I'm ready to uh, bring it. And then that's just, I don't know if that can work out. I mean, you have to stay loose. At the end of the day, you have to at least kind of enjoy what you're doing. And I think this was a, a, sort of a weird sort of moment uh, for her. She probably realized that. You know, I'm, I have to take it seriously for myself, but I don't know. Sort of like as soon as she got hit in that fight, it, she I think she didn't realize that was it. It was over. So, I mean, that's all I really have to say about that. But Ronda Rousey was a sort of media phenomenon. She was built up uh, at a time when, again, uh, female mixed martial arts was in its infancy. But now it's caught up. So now when Rousey was big, and even in, in like 18 months, the sport can evolve. When, Rousey, when Rousey got big... She was, you know, fighting against people that weren't, I'd say, as experienced as they were now. Uh, her herself, she's a she's a judo bronze uh, medalist, right? So she's a judo expert. Most of her fights, she finishes people by clinching them up, which means getting in close, you know, grabbing them, uh, doing a, some sort of judo throw or hip throw, and then arm barming their arm off their their bodies, the opponent basically, and forcing the tap. So not a, necessarily a one-trick pony. That's too simplistic. But being a specialist in one, in one sort of attribute or one martial art, and that doesn't work in mixed martial arts. Um, that only worked on the men's side for the first, I don't know, three, four years at most, where you can get away with being just a, you know, maybe get away with being a kickboxer and a good wording, and get or getting away with being a jujitsu uh, practitioner who was good. But it quickly became apparent that in order to be a successful men's mixed martial artist, mix being the key word, you had to be at least competent all around, whether it's a grappling, striking, takedown, offense, defense, a submission, submission, defense. You had to at least know a little bit in order to survive. And Rousey never was a really competent striker, and that showed in spades in the Holly Holm fight where she was outclassed, and now she was outclassed again. And... Hasn't really, and it's and for some people they can't some people just don't have the aptitude for it, so it was good that Rousey got big in a time when I think the the other athletes around her were still in the same boat where they're not as experienced, uh, they're still sort of coming together, having a bigger pool of talent. And, but now I think it's passed her by, so I, I think that's the last we've seen of Ronda Rousey in mixed martial arts. But as as Amanda Nunes said after the fight, hey, she, which is what's why I love Amanda Nunes because she was like, yeah, I knew I was going to beat her. I knew it was just going to happen, but hey, she's like, well, you know, don't be sad for Ronda. She's got her million. She has a Hollywood career lined up. It's like, I'm the champ now. You know, be happy for me. And I, I love uh, Amanda Nunes after that. I mean, I think that's really cool. Uh, I think she's going to be a, a good a good person to follow in the sport. Double Dragon 4 was announced. So, D Double Dragon 4, I tweeted out that I was surprised about this just because there was already a Double Dragon 4. Like, 1, 2, and 3 were on the NES. 
uh, on one, two, and three were all arcade games originally. And then Super Double Dragon came out on Super Nintendo, and that was always four, I thought, right? Because Double Dragon 5 also came out. And Double Dragon 5 was a fighting game, a one-on-one fighting game. What system was that on? I know it was on, uh, it was on Super Nintendo. It was also on the Jaguar. It was on the Jaguar, Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo. Double Dragon 5, The Shadow Falls, which was not a good game. Uh, I, I remember Super Double Dragon being pretty good. Um, not great. I haven't played in a while. But let's see. Double Dragon 5, The Shadow Falls, uh, was developed by Leland Interactive Media um, and then published by Trade West on the Super Nintendo Genesis. So I thought, um, when I saw the announcement for Double Dragon 4, I just thought it was weird just because uh, here we have a franchise that's ignoring games in its own series. But then when you watch the teaser, you understand why. So Double Dragon 4 is basically the fourth NES Double Dragon. It's totally being done in an ape. It's a style with a, a graphic look that looks just like Double Dragon 2. Uh, I mean, like, it has almost the same sprites for Jimmy and uh, Billy. I mean, it's, like, it's a minute 45 teaser, so it's not a huge amount to go on, but, you know, there's some... There's some there's an Abobo who looks exactly like the Abobo from, like, the original. So it looks like a mix of different ones, you know, a mix of different styles from the three NES games. They, they show the um, the spinning kick from Double Dragon 2. Same upper uh, uppercut, a little bit of a, an additional sort of like combo, like kneeing combo, where like there's like a, a back kick and then a knee, and the back kick was in the original Double Dragon, only it's in the arcade. Uh, there's a hairpin throw, uh, where you know where he's elbowing, Billy's elbowing instead of just kneeing, and then throwing, then kicking after the the throw, and then a, a knee. So there's like a combo system here. Uh, looks like the platforming elements are back, which are always the best part of Double Dragon. Uh, sarcasm. Uh, a little platforming with a little uh, little wheel that's going around. you got to jump on. It looks like there's cutscenes added in uh, here. Uh, so from the surface, I like the idea of this. Of this Double Dragon 4 being, um, being in the style of the NES games. I don't love the idea that it's just a total sort of um, cash in on this, you know, sort of retro thing. But then you realize that, okay, it's the 30th anniversary of uh, Double Dragon, uh, at least on the uh, NES. Um, so then that's, you know, actually it was, it was in 87 as well in the arcade? Or I thought it was 86? Oh, it was. Okay, no, it was, okay, it was July in 87 on the NES. Okay, if only someone wrote an NES guidebook where that had that information. Uh, so, so, I mean, it makes sense to do that. So I'm not totally a- against that. Um, not at all. Um, and it looks like they're adding in... Again, there's only a minute 45 of a teaser trailer. There's a, a two-player dual mode, which was in the original game. There's some options we don't know about. There's a question mark for a mode they don't want to reveal. And it looks like you can change the language out. And there's options. So this will be... A, you know, I think this will be cool. I think this will be cool to sort of go back to that spirit. And uh, it's going to be on PlayStation 4 and Steam. But I wonder if... I wonder if they're going to be too... uh, Too faithful to how the limitations of the NES made some sort of... You know, resulted in some stuff that maybe... 
wasn't the best. So, for example, like on the NES versions of the, these games, the maximum number of enemies on the screen at one time was always two, and they're always the same type. Of course, in the arcade, you usually had like you can have three or four guys. You can have different types. Yes, there was slowdown in the arcade. We got into that big fight, me and Ian, about how good we both thought Double Dragon was. He hated it, and I thought it was good. Anyway, so but at least on a shot in this trailer, there's one shot where there's three of the same enemies. There's three uh, female characters that are attacking. But at least there's three, not just two. But I'm still looking for a shot in the trailer here that shows two different enemy types. And I don't see it here yet. I just see three of the same enemy type. So I, I hope they I hope they tweak that a bit. I'm not saying they have to have 10 people on the screen at one time. But, you know, let's make this a little more interesting versus waiting to beat up one enemy type at a time. You know. Um, so this is going to come out. Uh, January 30th, uh, Steam, shh, and PS4. I I think, I'm not sure this is going to lead to a bunch of uh, other sort of franchises coming back in an NES style, because honestly, there's not that many viable uh, third parties out there that would go back to it at this point. Um, we had, the, the probably the biggest famous one was when you had Mega Man uh, 9 and 10, with Capcom, that was probably the biggest sort of one, uh, but I, I don't picture a Konami doing that with Castlevania. I just don't see like like them going back to a game format they you know hasn't been around for thirty years. I just don't see that uh, for graphical style and gameplay style. You know, I could I could see another Mega Man game coming back at some point, or maybe they'll do a, a new Mega Man X, you know, Super Nintendo style. But Double Dragon, I mean. Uh, I was kind of surprised to see this, but, you know, they've had other games the past few years. Uh, was it Double Dragon Neon? Uh, was it the one that got pretty good reviews? Uh, you know, stuff like that. So, we will see if this leads to a renaissance in NES-style games. I mean, the NES Classic Edition's out there. Maybe other companies will see this and be like, oh, you know, our our library of games that we have from the past 30 years, maybe we can do it in that same sort of style and get the 35-year-olds to go and buy it again. I don't know. So Super Mario Run, little update. It's had its ups and downs on the iOS uh, App Store. It uh, comes up. This, I mean, this is Nintendo's big sort of debut. I mean, Mitomo was sort of a social experiment, and they only they only had a partial stake in Pokemon Go and did develop, develop it themselves. But this is their first real sort of foray into these mobile games. And uh, I did a review of Super Mario Run. I like it. I actually like it more the more I've played it. I've been playing uh, the Toad Rally, actually, most of all. But I have enjoyed going back and getting all the... Trying to get all the coins. So I've gotten... Um, I haven't completed all the levels yet. I'm taking my time. But for most of the levels, I could easily get at least the, was it the pink and the purple coins. And the black coins are a little more challenging. But um, it's fun. Like, it's actually fun to try to unlock different characters. I have everyone unlocked, I think, except for... I think I have one character remaining. I think I have Toad remaining? Or... Another character, I forget. But I've been using Luigi a lot because he can jump really high. Even though it seems like it's hard for him to get the star power up automatically. But anyway. So, so at the time these articles started coming out about a, a week after its release, the, the issue was was that there was a ton of downloads. There was tens of millions of downloads of Super Mario Run. But since this is a free-to-try, but you have to pay to basically unlock the full game title, um... 
there was a lot of people upset with that. So the, the star ratings on this game were like only two and a half stars, and this was the the number one app. That's really strange for that to happen. So I think people weren't expecting this to be a game. They they expected this to be a free game with maybe ads or uh, pay you know sort of pay to play elements inside, like a lot of the uh, popular games like Mobile Strike downloaded it now for the App Store, where you can play it to start. But then in order to really get far and not have to wait, you know, you got to pump in those 99 cent sort of purchases or $2 purchases in order to really enjoy it fully. But Nintendo just said, no, 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 we just want $10 one time only. No, no sort of uh, microtrans- no microtransactions to speak of. And you can get the flight, which I, I was fine with. I'd rather would do that. I'd rather pay a little bit more up front than deal with bullshit down the line. You know, I, I would rather do that. Um, so the rankings fell off because of that. So it's no longer the highest grossing, uh, grossing app and it's, it's, it's fallen, fallen off. Um, but it's still making money. What's important to realize is that yes, Nintendo might've learned the lesson here and that just because they had a popular iconic Mickey mouse type character on consoles doesn't necessarily mean that that would translate fully into a mobile market where you now you have a lot of young kids playing games like Angry Birds or anything else where they may not necessarily have might not have the same integration with smaller children uh, a Mario game and plus again it's a ten dollar app you know it's not free so it might be harder to get those kids playing but people aren't used necessarily I mean there are apps out there that cost more than ten dollars but maybe not for games of this nature like endless runners so maybe maybe that was sort of a misfire where they maybe they could have priced it at five dollars. Uh, like a certain NES guide app is, or 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 eight dollars, whatever you know what I mean. But it's still doing well, according to this article uh, I'm looking at uh, on Pocket Gamer. Uh, it's estimated to have generate. This is as, as of January third. Super Mario Run is estimated to have generated thirty million dollars in revenue from ninety uh, million downloads in under a month since it has launched. So you do some pat math. What does that mean? Thirty divided by ten dollars is uh what is that 30 divided by 30 million divided by by 10 is 3 million so 3 million purchases you have uh that's not a good ratio that definitely is not a good ratio because if you go 3 divided by 90 that means 3 3 and a third percent of your people downloading Super Mario Run are actually paying the $10 to play it after they tried the first few levels uh, yeah, it was actually in the article format. Yes, three percent conversion rate. That's not good, but the good news is that thirty million is not a small number either in revenue. And I'm not even sure what the percentage they get from Apple is. Usually, it's seventy percent. They might have said, "Hey, we're Nintendo. We want ninety percent." Either way, they're making the worst case scenario. You know, they they're making at least twenty million dollars so far, like twenty one, twenty two million dollars, uh, just on just on iOS, not even including Android, but. Because of the the estimate was was off, um, Nintendo's stock suffered. Because I I guess I guess the, the stockholders uh, were impatient and realizing, oh, we got fifty million downloads in a few days. You know that means that we're gonna make uh, five hundred million dollars. No, no, pump the brakes a bit here. Uh, pump the brakes. And remember, stock prices it, it, they fluctuate. That's just the confidence of the stockholders. In what the, the company is currently doing and in the revenue. I mean, that's all it is. It's just confidence uh, that they have. So they're not in a terrible state. It's not a good state to have a 3% conversion rate. 
And that's what we should focus on here, the conversion rate. What can Nintendo do to up that conversion rate and help? Obviously, the biggest sort of thing you say, drop the price. The problem is, is that they can't do that right now uh, for a couple of reasons. It's too soon. You'll piss off all the people like me that just paid $10 if they dropped it to, say, $7.99 or $5.99 or $4.99. Plus, it still has to come out for Android. So they have to keep the same price. It will be really bad business to sort of have two different prices on two different platforms. That would send a really awkward and bad message. And I don't think... Uh, I don't think Apple would be pleased at that at all. If they said, oh, why the fuck are you going on our competitor's platform and it's like $4 less? Well, what can happen, though, is give it a few months down the road and then there could be a sale price for a short while to $7.99 and that will probably help boost it. But I don't think Nintendo will ever go the route of the microtransactions or something like this. I think that would cheapen. They, they would never go like a free Mario Run type of game. I think that would cheapen it, cheapen the whole Nintendo experience. Like, you, it's like Nintendo's probably like you got to pay for the, you know, A plus Mario experience. We're not going to just give you a free app with, with ads and then you know have oh Mario can only jump fourteen times in a day, or else you got to buy more jumps. I don't think Nintendo wants to do that, nor should they. But they're also hurt in this conversion rate by the DRM, which is terrible. I saw one article saying that. You really have to watch your data plan. I am not playing this game when I go to the gym or, or anywhere that doesn't have Wi-Fi or in my car. I've only been playing this at home or at Frank's where there's Wi-Fi. Uh, I saw one estimate where it was about 150 megs uh, downloaded when you just get the game started and do the tutorial. Just for that. So I can't imagine then when you're loading up all these levels or accessing more features or the store, how much uh, data that's just eating away. So be very careful out there if you have a limit on your data, uh, whether it's like 2 gigs or 3. Unless you have unlimited data, you should probably not be playing this game where you're not connected to the Internet, not at all. Um, so according to this article, the game has less than two weeks to reach. Sensor Towers estimated $71 million in revenue. At its current conversion rate, the game would need to surpass $200 million to hit that estimate. I guess that, that, that'd be like the, the fucking, the, the highest one, the record. I don't fucking know. Uh, but uh, it, you can pre-register for this on Android devices, but I'm not exactly sure when that's going to come out, but that's going to help. But yeah, I agree that 3%, that's a really pitiful conversion rate. Uh, that's not good at all. The good news is that since it's Mario, though, you're going to get hundreds of millions of overall downloads in the long run. So even at 3%, you're still making Nintendo tens of millions of dollars. Uh, on a game that you know probably didn't really cost them a huge, huge amount of money in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, some more data here on Super Mario Run. Yeah, it fell. Wow, it fell off number one in the App Store, twenty two places in Japan's App Store, according to the research firm Sensor Tower. Um, ooh, that's not good. So it started on December sixteenth. It was number one area. Uh, it was number one everywhere. Then uh, within a week, it was five in the U.S., six in the U.K. Uh, 15 in Hong Kong and 23rd in Japan. So quite a drop-off indeed uh, there. Um, yeah. 25,000 plus reviews with a 2.5 star app rating at that point. Yeah, that's not good. 2016 ended with uh, some more sad news. Uh, another celebrity death. The passing of Carrie Fisher, known to most for the iconic role of playing Princess Leia in the original Star Wars trilogy, then in The Force Awakens last year, reprising the role. Um, 
I I wished it. it she, I mean, she was sixty. She lived a, a a very full life. She had a lot of problems that she was open about. Uh, drug addiction. Uh, she struggled with depression. Uh, she was an advocate for for uh, for mental illness uh, at a time when that wasn't co- as common as it is now. She had uh, what was it? Postcards from the Edge was basically semi autobiographical uh, narrative about you know her trouble as an uh, as an actress with substance abuse problems, you know. So she um. She passed away. She had uh, some either a heart attack or cardiac arrest. Was on, uh, probably in a coma or life support. And then after Christmas, you know, she dies. Uh, it, it, it's is it tragic? You hate to see anyone that you love that you have a connection with pass away. And this is probably the one of the bigger ones. In 2016, there was David Bowie. Uh, Gary Shandling hit me very hard, harder than I thought. I did not realize how much I, I loved the comedy of Gary Shandling and just he just seemed like a really nice individual and that shook up a lot of people. You, you saw how nice a guy he was by how shook up everyone was talking about him after he died. Um, but for Carrie Fisher, I mean, we're talking about an iconic uh, an iconic character she played and Star Wars is the most iconic film franchise out there. So a lot of people were in mourning, obviously. It's natural, especially with someone that was such a part of everyone's childhood. Uh, so I, I don't like talking about this stuff just because people people address death and deal with death in different ways. Uh, but there is there are some weird reactions to her death that I'll get into. And social media always makes it... I mean, social media is good in that you could come together with people and quickly see, oh, on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram, and, oh... I could, I could, uh, if I'm sad, these other people can help console me or they can bring out good thoughts and good memories about someone's life. That's where social media is good. But it can also be a cyclone of grief, like a vacuum of just feeling sort of just desolate and, and just despair. So I'll talk about that in a minute, why, why that's bad and some kind of weird effects from that. But Carrie Fisher, I wrote up uh, postcards from the edge. Uh, she was a script doctor as well. I'm um, looking at this uh, Daily News article talking about, and she and she was on a lot of scripts. So a script doctor is usually brought in to quickly go through an existing script and sort of punch it up, make the dialogue better, maybe have maybe not totally do a total overhaul, but just what can you do without totally destroying the script that exists and just making it a little bit better and punch it up. As they say, they usually don't get credit, script credit, because they usually are just paid to, you know, give us, you know, go through this in a week or two, and what you think, and bring it back to us. Um, but she, uh, she made changes to dialogue uh, in films like Hook, Lethal Weapon Three, which I remember reading at Lethal Weapon Three. They were almost right now as they were shooting it, so she probably helped a lot there. Sister Act, The Wedding Singer. So we're talking about some some fantasy there, some action, and some some comedy in there as well. But but the role of Princess Leia, uh, why I think it was so beloved to a lot of people, was we're talking a you go into that quote unquote strong female character, but that was a strong female character at a time in the seventies when it wasn't common to see that. 
It just wasn't. Now it's almost like people are, are not that they're getting hit over the head with it, but now it's 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 apparent that they, they're trying to write more strong female characters. But then it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, um, it was more noticeable then. It's It stuck out more. But it was so natural, the character. It wasn't like this is this you know the strong female type we want to throw in this movie. They they all went together. They all fit together. Uh, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and and uh, Han Solo. They all fit together. That 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 triad. But it was still a character, Princess Leia, that had had some faults. She was a little arrogant. Um, she wasn't totally always just. Totally strong and nothing can stop me. No, she had her she had her bad moments. Um, yes, she had her moments of agency. You know, uh, where she was strong. Uh, you know, she chokes out and kills Jabba the Hut. Uh, but there's time where she, she acted like a douchebag too. At the same time, you know, she gave Han too much shit at times. So it was a real character. It wasn't a quote unquote Mary Sue. You know, the popular like it was a real character that was strong, shooting up stormtroopers. But also, you know, made some mistakes and things that she shouldn't have said. Like I said, a real character. Fearful of getting tortured by Darth Vader, who wouldn't be. Um, sees her planet all drawn, destroyed in front of her in Star Wars. You know, so th- if, if that's your first exposure, I think that stays with you. To that, this is a, the first, maybe the, maybe the first woman I'm seeing in a film as a young kid that that could be maybe... Um, for someone who's like five or ten years old, that could be a big deal. Whether you're a boy or especially if you're a girl, that could be a big deal having that sort of role model for that for that strong female character that you may not have been exposed to before. I was lucky enough to uh, have G.I. Joe, and I, I love the G.I. Joe cartoon for many reasons, but that was one of my, my biggest cartoons I watched as like, you know, four or five-year-old, and there were strong female characters in that show, both good and evil, whether it was the Baroness, uh, Lady J, you know, Scarlet. And even on um, on uh, Masters of the Universe, you had strong female characters, uh, both uh, good and evil. Uh, Tila, uh, Evil Lynn with her weird yellow skin. But anyway, <laughs> so when you're young and impressionable, these characters mean that much more, I think. I think that's one of the reasons why you rightfully have uh, besides the fact that Carrie Fisher seemed like an awesome person, great sense of humor, very down to earth, very open about who she was, uh, both the good and the bad times in her life and the bad things she's went through. I think she had, what, one woman shows where she, she talked about all, all the bad things in her life, substance abuse and struggles, struggles with uh, mental illness, that she was real. I think that's part of the reason why. So it's kind of hard. You know, people loving Princess Leia, but yes, you have Carrie Fisher. Uh, I didn't see her act in that much outside of the Star Wars movies. Uh, but I do remember her being the sort of the good wife in the burbs with Tom Hanks that gradually is like, what the fuck are you doing? You're getting so nuts about your neighbors. What are you doing? By the way, the burbs is such an underrated movie. Go out and watch it. Not just for her performance, but the whole movie is great. And that's what I remember at her outside of Star Wars the most. I haven't seen from when Harry met Sally when she was a supporting supporting actress in that. So there was a lot of outcry on social media, and rightfully so. Let's just talk about real quick a couple of the silly things that I have to bring this up because I think, again, when you have social media, you have 
sort of the there's the good aspects of everyone to celebrate everyone wanting to celebrate someone's life and seek seek solace in times of pain. But then you have sort of a whirlwind of outrage that can happen with social media, uh, for better or for worse, and most of the time for worse. So for, let's talk about the Cinnabon controversy, which I wish you could make this up. So Cinnabon tweets out, uh, rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. You'll always have the best buns in the galaxy. And the picture is of um, cinnamon, cinnamon outline of Princess Leia. And then where her iconic uh, bun hairstyle is from the first movie, there is a cinnabon. It's, first of all, you can't say it's a bad taste because cinnamon is delicious. Ha ha ha. It was probably ill-timed, but I don't think it was a malicious tweet. I don't. I really don't think it was a malicious tweet. But people flipped the fuck out on that. And the problem with social media is that the timing is so key. Because had they done that tweet probably even a day or two later, I think people would have been more acceptable for it. Hell, people said that Carrie Fisher herself, who had a great sense of humor, probably would have found that really funny and endearing. Because she used to say she hated that that hairstyle anyway with the with the buns it was absolutely ridiculous it's been made fun of everywhere that hairstyle from the original uh star wars uh movie so people lost their fucking mind Cinnabon had to apologize and say of course we weren't trying to make fun of 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 carrie fisher why would they that was really silly but the other one i want to talk about uh was steve martin's tweet which the whole thing is unfortunate uh so Steve Martin tweeted out, let's see, where was Steve Martin's uh, tweet? Uh, Steve Martin, who knew Carrie Fisher, was a friend of Carrie uh, Fisher. Let's, you have to preface what I'm about to say with that, because that's a big part of this. He tweeted what he thought was a tribute to Carrie Fisher. He treated, he treated, he tweeted, when I was a young man, Carrie Fisher was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. She turned out to be witty and bright as well. So people lost their mind at that uh, for a few different reasons. Because they thought Steve Martin was just focusing on her physical appearance alone and uh, Carrie Fisher had spoken out against that in her career um, and noted that, uh, others noted that uh, Carrie Fisher wanted to be remembered for being just pretty. Um, but what's weird about it is that this tweet is actually not remembering Carrie Fisher for uh, her beauty. That was just the step-off point for Steve Martin to say she was witty and bright. So I, I think what he was trying to convey, which got lost, and of course the outrage machine made it worse and worse probably, was that here's, you know, when I'm younger, Steve Martin, 25 years ago, was, what was he, 45, what is he, 70 now? And Carrie Fisher, he probably knew when she was like 20, and she she was beautiful, she is beautiful, but he probably was like, holy shit, she's just stunning looking, but then he, he gets to know her and figures out, wow, this this woman not just is stunning looking, but is intelligent and witty and bright. And that's not an improper thing to say. That's actually a huge compliment because what he was trying to say was that this is my first impression of someone was because of her, her beauty was astounding to me. And then all of a sudden I figure out 
this person is brilliant at a young age and they're witty. Yeah, that's apparent. So I think what people have to have to realize is that um, you you don't have to get on someone for being honest. Like it's not like he was making a point of saying this is what I only remember her for. He was saying no, this is what I first remembered about her, which is true because when you see someone, when you see someone, the first thing you see is their appearance. The first thing you when you see with your eyes isn't I see their intelligence or I see their wit. That comes later. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that you meet in public for the first time, uh, you meet randomly at a party or you see on the street, we'll just see when you see random people that you think are good looking, that's the first thing you see with that sense of sight is their appearance. Then if you happen to learn they're intelligent or witty or funny, that almost 99% of the time comes after you first see them. And that's all Steve Martin was trying to say. And either either it came out wrong, which I personally don't think it did because I saw his point, but people just took it the wrong way and sort of ran with it. But again, it's just a shame because uh, they knew each other. They were friends. And according to this article from the LA Times, uh, Carrie Fisher had a one-night stand with with Steve Martin (laughs) one time. (laughs) And we're talking about that was probably around the late 70s. Uh, so there you have it. So they had a history with each other and Steve Martin got called on the carpet for it. The outraged police got to him. He had to delete a tweet about someone, um, you know, that he wanted to. Oh, and by the way, it's not like Steve Martin, people think Steve Martin reduced Carrie Fisher just being a pretty face. Um, she commented about Steve Martin in an interview saying, uh, being funny. This is to me funny. She, she made a comment saying this interview will be the last in the series I did in my upcoming book titled famous men. I have slept with so I could interview them later due out in the fall for Shyman Schuster. So she's even making a joke about having a one night stand with someone and forgetting about them. So again, I think Carrie Fisher seemed like a very, uh, just warm and open and funny person that wouldn't be offended by either a Cinnabon tweet or something that Steve Martin said like that. I just don't think she would. And I don't think you should be angry for her as well. It's just a waste of energy, and you should direct it elsewhere. It's kind of weird to me that I have to talk about, within, I don't know, five months or four months, the RCA Studio 2 esoteric system twice. So we talked about it originally, Ian and I, with the RCA Studio 2, when an auction came up and a very rare a bingo cartridge was found in an auction. And there wasn't, I think there wasn't really one found to that point. And it had bingo pieces and the RCA Studio 2 can only do very simple games to begin with. Um, so I guess people want to do bingo on the RCA Studio 2. That's fine, but it was never, I guess there wasn't any good, good copies of it out there. But now another rare cartridge has been found. And I learned of this via uh, a guy named Daniel who saw the Atari Age thread. And Atari Age is basically what this podcast has become for the most part. Every every other podcast is an Atari Age topic at this point. But Daniel sent me a note saying, More Studio 2 news. A different, extremely rare Studio 2 cartridge has turned up on eBay. This time it's the demonstration cartridge. This cart is one of two carts that have yet to be dumped. Uh, it's also a cartridge that no one seems to know what it does. So currently we're hoping the guy selling it helps us get it dumped or whoever buys it is part of the preservation community. Unfortunately, one person bidding on it is known to be an, in quotes, ass, and ransom stuff or just holds it 
and not do anything with it. Well, wow, I never talked about that before in the podcast with people uh, holding prototypes for ransom because they're fucking assholes. Anyway, he didn't say that. I said that. If it does get dumped, the only other, in quotes, grail and missing cartridge in the RCA Studio 2 library, where no known photo either exists, is the diagnostics cartridge. However, some information on what it did is known. So, this is great news for preservation. I, I love that stuff like this still gets found. Even for a, a more obscure, primitive system like the RCS Studio 2, which really doesn't have much of a claim to fame. It's ugly, doesn't even have detachable controllers, very simple, you know, black and white system. Uh, so, this auction currently on January 3rd, where I'm recording this, is for a system and one, two, three, four. Uh, five games and not even a power adapter, just the RCA Studio 2 TV selector switch. Uh, it's at $486 with three days left. It includes blackjack, space war, baseball, and tennis slash squash. So I think all games I have, I think I have two or three copies of tennis slash squash. It's like the, you know, the, the common game. And then there is a the demonstration cartridge. Uh, RCA Studio 2 has the stock number on it and it has home TV programmer on it. So, People on Ataris are excited because this isn't something that they've seen before come up. They're also excited for another reason. If you remember from the bingo uh, bingo game topic, that that was found in the Philadelphia area uh, where the RCA Studio 2 was manufactured. That's where RCA's headquarters was for this. So it made sense. This is being auctioned off, though, in Fargo, North Dakota, across the country. And if you go to the Atari H forum, you get more information about where this originally came from. By the way, it's funny because people are saying, don't everyone bid on this. There's one person saying, don't bid on this. I'm going to contact the seller so we can get this cartridge dumped and preserved. Hold off on bidding. So they're trying to make sure that they can get this preserved, which is great. So what's interesting is that the seller confirmed, this is from Blazing Lasers posting on Atari H, and then the seller came in to the thread as well to confirm this. The seller confirmed that his parents purchased the system games and demonstration cart new back in 1977 from a hardware store in Cavalier, North Dakota. So it's that's to everyone insane just because that, to not have it out of the same uh, Philly area uh, in South Jersey where this other RCA Studio 2 stuff is being found means that this was getting around nationwide. But probably just means also that for whatever reason this this store out in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, was sent a demonstration cart for the studio, too. So to me, that's just fascinating as well on the surface. That's what happened. Um, and the person came along here and and uh, confirmed that, yes, this is mine. So I'm hoping that this gets, please, this can get, this can get dumped. People on Atari Age are saying, that um, I will send you the tool to dump this. I will send you instructions. Please preserve the ROM before some nefarious asshole might. I'm paraphrasing. But before someone else can get this cartridge and hold it ransom. And just hold, put it in their collection forever. And it's because they're fucking better than, than we are. Or think or they're superior because they own something no one else does. Okay, so the person posted that owns this. Hello, Studio 2 community. I've been asked by one of your members to post on here. I'm the person with a demo cart for sale on eBay. Being new to this, I have no idea the value or significance of the cartridge I have for sale. And it's funny because it says, I don't understand why this is so important. Imagine if you have nothing to do with video game collecting or preservation and you have something that you've had for 40 years now, literally, 
you know, like I'm just selling this, this crappy cartridge and all of a sudden it's up to $500. Like, whoa, what's going on? Now you're asked to post on a freaking video game form. You probably know what's going on either. The quick, sto- the quick backstory, the person said is that the, uh, my parents bought this unit with the four games and the demo cartridge at a hardware store in Cavalier, North Dakota. And talking with my, fa- talking with my father tonight, he seems to recall that the store was going out of business. We've had it in our family ever since then in 1977. So, this is going to shoot up more. I'm hoping that even if this sells, the person will get it dumped beforehand if it's not being sold to someone that wants to dump it. Because, again, this is the first example we have of this. Uh, at least that I know about. I'm not an RCA Studio 2 expert, so don't, don't nail me to the freaking cross if I'm wrong on this out there. But I'm always excited for, for stuff like this because I'm starting to move towards myself more from uh, collecting the preservation and wanting to get more behind that as well and associate with more people like that. Because once you have all this crap, that's fine. Now we, we've done something with it, but let's let's preserve it for history besides gathering you know, gathering it in. So let's let's see where this auction ends up. Um, I won't put a bid on it. You shouldn't either. <laughs> Mail releases after the auction's over, so there's not some asshole that'll watch this on YouTube and, and bid it up to three thousand dollars and hold on to it. You know, but um, this is a good day for uh, video game uh, history in general, even for the RCA, the lowly. I when I and I say that with love, the lowly RCA Studio Two. Uh, Game pres- a game being preserved that wasn't there before. It's still good news. I want to follow up, and I said I wouldn't originally follow up on this. But I guess the second and Charles story and the follow-up brought up more and more people contacting me about their experience with one of the 30 chains. And to, re- to quickly recap the second and Charles story, it's, it's 30 locations. It's used media story for music, movie, books, and games. And I, I talked to corporate because th- there was concern by someone who con- contacted me about the practices of the store who may or may not. The store employee told them that the, the corporate policy was was throwing out some games or consoles. And it's not sure if that was true or not, but at, at this point, it doesn't matter. Now, the sort of second and trial story has opened up to me because I have more and more people contacting me about their experience with second and Charles. And it's not to spotlight just this one chain, because that's going to be unfair. But again, it's just, it's to talk about, in general, what happens when you have used media stores or any store in general that aren't experts in, in retro-slash-classic video games, older video games, getting into the market when they really shouldn't. And, they're to, and it's to make a quick buck. They're not there to preserve history. I don't care what their corporate policy says. That's just corporate speak for saying, this is what sounds good for us to make more money. So I got a few emails. I'm just going to go over uh, two emails that I received about Second and Charles. And again, this is all in the email. I'll let you decide if it's real or not. Or not. But the second one, there's evidence that it's, it's pretty concrete, which is more troublesome. But let's go through the, uh, a couple uh, of these uh, emails right now. So um, the first one is from someone named Rody. And his email says, I saw your videos covering Second and Charles used game practices and wanted to provide my personal experience. To put it into perspective, I'm in the store at least once a week to see what new uh, cart trade-ins they have as they're the closest place to my house that still does this. First, I've never actually seen anything gaming-related make it into the free bin. Well, there you go. That's not to say that things are getting trashed, but rather they don't sit in the free bin for very long before someone claims it, regardless of what it is. 
For example, my girlfriend tried to trade in an old PS1 that they wouldn't accept. That I get. She had no controller slash cables, and the poor console was smoked around for almost 20 years. She didn't She didn't even make it out of the door before another customer offered to take it off her hands. Another day, she dropped some old demo discs in the free bin and didn't, didn't last 10 minutes before someone had grabbed them. Well, that's good news. That's really good news, then. Another time, I was in trade, a line to trade in some old stuff, and the guy in front of me was being turned away with a complete inbox TI-99. The employee explained to the guy uh, trying to trade it in that they probably wouldn't be able to find a buyer for such an old device with no games, and thus they couldn't accept it for trade-in. The employee then offered to put it in the free bin for the customer, and the customer agreed. Okay, let's stop right there. First off, how will the employee know that no one's interested in a TI-99 in the box? Hell, I'm interested in a TI-99 in the box. I don't own one in the box. Used to, I told the story. But this is going against their corporate policy right here by this email. The employee offered to put it in the free bin for the customer, and the customer agreed. So before I was told by court policy was that that the employees don't put anything into the free bin. Obviously, if this email is to be believed, that's not true. They do. Which brings up this second part, which is troublesome. The employee placed the TI-99 on a shelf with some other items behind the counter, and then proceeded to help me. I checked back in about an hour on my own trade-ins, and the TI-99 was nowhere to be found. I regret not making the guy an offer immediately after they turned him away, but I like to think it found a good home somewhere. Okay, so (laughs) one of two things could have happened there. The employee could have taken that TI-99 and then put it out in the free bin themselves, even though they're technically not supposed to do that. The customers are supposed to do that. And then it was taken by someone within an hour. Or that employee took it for himself. Which is the danger of allowing employees to handle the stuff going into the free bin, which is actually the good court policy that the employees shouldn't be placing things into the free bin because that just leads to graft and theft at that point. So that's very troublesome that he first off, this employee told a customer, allegedly told a customer that the TI-99 in the box, no one wanted it, which is insane. I think someone would want that, especially because in the box makes it more collectible. But also the fact that they then didn't tell the customer to put it in the free bin. They then took it for potentially themselves. Potentially. We don't know. But the potential is there. They didn't follow uh, court policy themselves at this second in Charles. That's bad. Back to the email. I do want to say, though, that your concern about the mishandling uh, of retro games is well-founded. For the longest time, this store struggled with the most basic things like price tag placement on Super Nintendo cartridges. There's nothing more heart-wrenching than seeing a mint label with a big, dumb orange price tag plastered over it. More recently, they've done it with NES cards that still have their original boxes. Can you imagine paying eBay prices for these games only to damage the box when you try to peel off the price tags? Well, some price tags are easier to get off than others. You can always use uh, you know, some sort of goo-gone or a handy-dandy uh, blow-dryer to warm and get it off. But either way, yes, I, that is troublesome. One final thing, I didn't think I mentioned in your video. Uh, when you trade in items, they don't give you an itemized receipt. They offer you a single lump sum of credit or cash, but don't tell you exactly how much you're getting for what item. That always struck me as a shady practice. Oh, no, yes, that uh, yeah, that is kind of shady. To not at least tell you what your games are worthless and which ones are valuable. 
Ooh, that's bad. Ooh, I don't like that at all. I'm glad you brought that up. Wow. And for you guys out there that have your own YouTube channels or tweeting at me about, oh, well, my second Charles is great. All the people there. Are you listening to some of these experiences? Are these all made up? Do you see now the trouble? And I'm not sure why you're shilling for a corporation that doesn't give a shit about uh, this much, this, this stuff nearly as much as we do, especially me. It makes you look like a fool, frankly, if you're doing that. If you're going out of your way to try to stick up and being overly defensive for a corporation uh, instead of being on the side of trying to preserve these games or not screw over customers, either trading and stuff or buying stuff. That aside, so anyway, sorry for the long email. Oh, the, uh, Rody, that was not a long email at all. That was actually a fine email bringing up some important points about, at this location at least, the customer being turned away from trading in an item that he should have got some cash for, and then the employee uh, potentially, we know he did something bad if, if he took it from the employee and not, did not tell the, excuse me, took it from the customer, didn't tell the customer to put it in the free bid himself, but potentially held on to that TI-99. I don't know, but that's the danger of what this employee did. That's the first email. The second email, though, is more troublesome. This is the one that, that pissed me off when this was tweeted at me originally. All right. So this was uh, Casey sent me a few images. Um, this is from the Whitehall, Pennsylvania, Second and Charles store. I sent me an email, uh, Casey. I said, so during the summer, I went to the Whitehall, Pennsylvania, Second and Charles store and was looking around the aisles of, game, of the game section. Uh, then I went to see a game that was in the case. And while I was waiting, I looked over the counter and saw a crate of NES games and asked to look at that crate of NES games that had a bunch of commons. And there it was. And it nearly froze in place and knew that I immediately had to pay for it. And what he's referring to is a panic restaurant cart. That'll get to in a second. I had to immediately pay for it and leave the store and send it to my pawn shop buddy to open it up because I didn't have a bit driver to confirm it was real. I did see a few reproduction games there before. Reproduction? What? I'll get to that in a second. Prices on games are okay. They're pretty decent. But the trade-in uh, value, what they give you is pretty horrible. Here is more pictures of the board of the game, too. If you want any more information, feel free to ask. Thank you, Pat. From Casey. So Casey, and I, and I should have prefaced it with what he found. Casey bought a panic restaurant at this second in Charles that was marked on the sticker of the cartridge was marked Repro. This blows my fucking mind. So, the sticker, it's on this video. By the way, this is game is absolutely real. The board checks out, the cartridge checks out. This is a real panic restaurant that he found in a crate. The date on the label, September 4th, 2016. It says, second in Charles, number 2123, $49.95 for what they thought was a repro. So many problems with this story, my head's going to fucking explode, and that's what I tweeted out. NES... It says NES 8 Panic Restaurant Repro. It says Repro on the cartridge. I'm going to try to hold it together during this story. There's about four problems to this story. And I'll try to go through this one at a time. Problem number one. Is that the employee working at the store. Accepted what they thought was a reproduction panic restaurant game and accepted that as a trade-in. 
They then accepted that trade-in of a repro game and then sold that game again. It's actually two problems. There is no such thing as a reproduction uh, NES game that already exists. That is called a counterfeit game. If this photo is real, this second in Charles store engaged in an illegal practice of buying and selling what they thought was counterfeit items. They are buying and selling counterfeit items, a corporation, a major corporation, and willing. This isn't them making a mistake. They marked the sticker repro. That's a counterfeit game that you not only gave someone trading credit for that you probably shouldn't have, uh, but then you also then turn around and for $49.95 selling a game that you willingly know is a, is a repro slash counterfeit. That's illegal to do that. That's the first problem. The second problem, of course, is not knowing that this was actually a real authentic game. So they're engaging in the buying and selling of counterfeit merchandise. But the second problem is that this is actually a real fucking game, which is sad that their employee didn't realize that. And I'll go back to the first point that they're selling repros anyway. The, the person writing the email to me, Casey, said he's seen repros before. So that's these are two or three problems in one. Why are you selling a counterfeit game? First of all, why are you selling it all? But second, why are you charging forty nine ninety five? Where does that price even fucking come from? Because counterfeit games are technically worthless. They should be destroyed. Counterfeit games. They should be fucking destroyed. You should have never accepted what you thought was a counterfeit game in, in the first place, but in this case, it's actually good because it was a real one. So you're buying and selling uh, counterfeit items, uh, and then you're charging forty nine ninety five for it in full, but then it's actually a real game. Okay? That's actually three or four problems right there. It's good that someone got a deal in this way. Casey, it's awesome that you rescued this game uh, for, for a low price and got it out of there. And, and screw Second and Charles again for making this error twice. But what boils my blood, besides a chain, major corporation that are knowingly tra- accepting trade-ins and selling at an exorbitant cost anyway, uh, counterfeit games, and not being able to fucking identify them, that just blows my mind entirely. Again, these aren't GameStop employees that are taking these and, and shipping them back to the warehouse who don't have the time to, or training to deal with it. This shows that there's no fucking training going on. And it shows that they, any employee with common sense knows that you should not be selling counterfeit items because it's fucking illegal to do so. Again, if this label is true. But I highly, I don't see why this would be a fake from looking at it. A fake uh, second Charles uh, repro. Because this person would be in deep trouble if that's the case. But the tragedy in all this, and you, and you out there can be selling, and some of the people tweet at me without, without getting it. Uh, is that well, well, Pat? Well, why why is it bad? This guy got a good deal on an expensive game. Yes, he did. This guy got a great deal and good for him. But what about that poor sap who traded it in? What about them? They got fucked in the ass. They got royally fucking screwed on the trading. They traded in the game. That if they brought to a mom and pop shop, they would have got hundreds of dollars for. Hundreds of dollars. If they sold that game on eBay, 
An open auction one on January 2nd just ended for $400. On open auction, buy it nows. Uh, one sold for $450. Open auction, $495. Buy it nows at $550, $600. They would have made hundreds of dollars either on eBay or even traded into a mom-pop. A store like Luna Video Games would have probably given them at least 50 or 60% cash for a game that's hard to find, knowing that they'd be able to sell it probably within a week or two and make a couple hundred dollars profit off the trade-in. This person walked into a second in Charles. Maybe they had the games for years, maybe not. They were fucking told by an employee at second in Charles that this game is a repro when it wasn't. If that doesn't fucking boil your blood, it fucking should. It w- for damn well fucking should. It absolutely. Because they gave that person... Uh, for a game that they turned around and sold for fifty dollars, they probably gave that person no more than five or ten dollars cash. That person got fucked out of hundreds of dollars on the traded of just that one game, and who the hell else knows what other game they could have traded in that was either uh, erroneously called a repro uh, when it wasn't. That's a fucking shame. Again, Casey, this isn't against you. I would have done the same thing if I saw that game and rescued it and got it for 50 bucks and hell, then you can sell it and make your money back or if you need it for your collection, what have you. It's not on you, but that that nameless person out there got fucked in the ear for hundreds of dollars by a store uh, and employees that don't know what the hell they're doing in terms of uh, valuing cartridges or even judging cartridges to be fucking authentic or not and then Knowingly and willing, willingly labeling cartridges as counterfeit, which is a repro, it's a fucking counterfeit, and then selling them, which is illegal. I'm, I'm guaranteeing you that's not a second in Charles corporate policy. And if it is, people in corporate, you better fucking, you better fucking fix it and fix it right fucking now. Because to me, this is worse than anything GameStop ever did. Because at least GameStop. In their in their retro, uh, in their retro function, as bad as it's been, I don't think they are knowingly selling counterfeit items. They're just too dumb and are too ignorant to know what it is. Here, this is direct evidence that they are knowingly trying to sell counterfeit merchandise and counterfeit retro games. It, it's a shame, and again, a, a warning against those out there to be vigilant against these media stores trying to make a quick buck and not having the train to do this. Because no one wins in the end. Stop putting out your, your, your videos defending these companies when you shouldn't be. You, no one should be uh, sticking up for any of these companies. They're not your fucking friend. Watch out for this sort of shit. Because it's harmful uh, to not just the, the retro gaming community in general, but to individuals... Uh, that are now screwed out of money for their games that are real, and they're told they're fake. It's it's absolutely, it's insane. It's insane. So I sold at the flea market a, a few weeks back, and I wanted to wait until Ian was healthy again to talk about it with him, but uh, since it's almost a month ago, I want to say it now because it's still fresh in my mind somewhat. The experience. The experience. I sold with Frank. Uh, I bought the spot. Don't worry, Frank. You don't have to pay me back because, uh, you know, I used your help. You know, I used your truck to transport all my garbage to sell there. It was quite an experience, though. It really was an experience selling there. There was good and there was bad, but it was mostly bad. First, the prep involved with 
getting all the shit together, trying to price some of this stuff. And that was all a waste of time. I maybe sold 20% of the stuff I bought. Maybe 25-30%, but it was a very low amount. I will preface this all by saying that the Chargers were on TV uh, that day. And they were on TV um, in the in the morning. So what people, they're telling me that usually when the Chargers are on TV is that if they're on in the afternoon, people will get up early to come to the swap meet uh, and then go back home and watch the game. But if they're on in the morning, they won't do that. They'll just stay home for the whole day. It's not like they're going to come later on at 1 or 2 in the afternoon. You know, it's just like, what's the point of doing that? So there's probably less people in general, but it was still fairly busy. But I had problems selling stuff. Uh, and I brought video game stuff. I brought toy stuff. Uh, I brought electronic stuff. And nothing really moved the whole day. There's a few stories I want to talk about, though. Got there early with Frank. We got there at about 6 in the morning. I did not have a chance to walk around early and look for shit to uh, to buy. I mean, that's one of the, the fringe benefits. Because a lot of the sellers that do that, they'll walk around for the first hour until 7 a.m. when people come in. But then they spend the next two hours setting up. I didn't want to do that. And plus, we had to do this sort of freaking Three Stooges routine. Of pouring up the canopy that we rented, then we we did the we did we did the uh, we did it upside down at first. It was funny. Me and Frank were yelling at each other, you know, putting together these like metal poles, then trying to tie the the canopy. It was nuts. We got it done though. We got it done before seven. We got set up. So I wasn't able to sell much. I still made hundreds of dollars though. It's not like I didn't sell anything, but I mean, I bought enough of like decent stuff that I thought I'd sell out a good amount. You know, I sold. I had a bag of GI Joes from the '80s uh, doubles that I couldn't sell. I wasn't even asking that much. You know, I was asking like a couple of dollars each. I wanted to sell the whole bag. No one wanted it. You know, um, I had about twenty to thirty retro games, along with a bag of like controllers. A few zappers, the the gyro spinners from Gyromite, just miscellaneous like Nintendo and Super Nintendo controllers and accessories. Bag sitting there, maybe one person even looked at the bag. I will admit that our stuff wasn't like set up as clean, but we had some cool stuff. Frank had uh, some board games, Avalon Hill board games that he might have sold maybe one one only. Um, I had uh, toys. I myself had board games. I had video game stuff. I sold, I think, one video game. I sold my extra, I think, Tiles of Fate cartridge. That's all I sold. No one was even asking for the prices of the stuff, which was very surprising. Wario came around early. He saw an acrylic display I have. I basically told him to move along. I wasn't pricing anything yet. didn't come back. And I was actually funny because I was like almost right across from Wario, too. He was like diagonally across from me. I thought it was funny. But... I learned a harsh lesson, and I'll get to one story where I almost got in a fight with someone, but I learned a harsh, harsh lesson that day, that it's a lot harder to sell the shit you accumulate than it is to accumulate the shit in the first place. That was an eye-opener in terms of, maybe not for retro games, those would be easier to sell, but for like toys and stuffed animals and stuff. Like I had stuff like, um, that I did sell. I had a, a, a talking Pee Wee Herman with a drawstring. But I also have like the Terry like flapping his wings like a puppet thing with a cherry. And I sold it off for like 25 bucks. 
uh, or 20 bucks. It's probably worth about 60 or 70 or so, you know, altogether. You know, but yet, you know, you're going to take a loss at the flea market. That's what it is. But people at the flea market, I learned, don't like spending money at all, even in stuff that's worth it. For example, I had a webcam, brand new webcam, the Logitech C920 that <clears throat> I think cost 70 or 80 bucks new. I only wanted about $30 for it, brand new. No one wanted it. So you're saving more than half of the eBay price or any, or Amazon price, brand new. No one wanted it still. And it's like, I can't give that away. I I want to get rid of it. I can't totally give it away. Uh, I had a wireless headphone set that would cost 50 new. And this one was used, though. I'll say that. But I wanted like 10 bucks for it, for wireless headphones. Uh, they're wireless. Um, were they Sennheiser? They're ones that you charge. No wires. You, you, you hook it up to your stereo TV. No one even wanted to spend 10 bucks on the freaking thing. So that was a harsh lesson. Just about how hard it is to get rid of this crap at a flea market. I, I talked to a few people afterwards, and it's like, yeah, this is stuff that if I wanted to move everything I had, I probably would have to sell every day at the flea market for at least like three months, and I probably would have sold, you know, sold more and more eventually. So I don't know. It's my mistake for thinking I could sell a chunk of it that day. I thought, I thought I'd be able to sell more than 25% of it. That's for sure. I, th- I was thinking maybe selling half of this shit because it was priced to move a lot of it. Not priced to give away, but priced to move. Uh, you know, so that was a shame. But the the lack of interest in the retro games was really not telling, but surprising that th- there was no one really interested in it. Um, there was a bag, uh, like I said, bag controllers and zappers, and no one really wanted it. Um, it was funny because yeah, I think Frank had a zapper laying around; he wanted me to sell for him. Um, there was the one. There was one person really interested, in I had some Transformers figures that I actually brought there by accident. And then he got pissed that I wouldn't sell them because he's going through the bag. I said, oh, no, sorry, I don't want to sell those. And I kind of like took the bag. He's just sitting there like it felt like he wanted to kill me, Uh, which I thought was funny. But I was like, I actually brought the Transformers by accident, a bunch of Generation 1 Transformers I had laying around. But everything else was priced to get the hell out of there, and I just couldn't sell it. But um, the eight hours I was there from 6 a.m. to about 4 it went by so quickly. That's like nine hours, by the way. No, it's like, no, it's 10 hours. It went by so quickly that I can't explain it. I didn't eat too much that day. I, I was dehydrated. Maybe I was in a daze, but it went by in, in the blink of an eye, which was the other thing that I thought was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I didn't film anything. Uh, I didn't have time. My mind wasn't wrapped around. I was just trying to honestly sell as much shit as I could at the time. Uh, but I had one bad experience that day where someone was either goading me into a fight or wanted to fight me. Because, boy, uh, I wouldn't have minded to throw down because it was almost at that point where it was bad, where even Frank was like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Uh, so I was selling I was selling this um, empty box for a Lego set. It was a pirate Lego set. Uh, if I had to guess the age of it, mid-90s, uh, it was mid nineties for sure. Um, it was like a medium sized box. It wasn't a small one, like the, not, not the huge, huge ones, but a medium sized box. You know, the ones that are like, you know, maybe eighteen inches by, uh, by twelve inches or eighteen inches by fourteen, something like that. So a medium sized set. I looked up the full set online, like the full set of this this Lego set. If you had a complete, went for around a hundred dollars, roughly. 
if you had to complete in the box. So I was selling the empty box for like five bucks. I figure, you know, it's five bucks. It's not giving it away. So I might want to complete the set. So this gentleman, big guy, about, I want to say six, five, six, six, probably about 270 pounds. Big guy, probably mid fifties had a uh, goatee glasses, silver hair. Um, this is later in the day. I want to say it's about one one thirty. He comes in. He walks in to. We have the canopy. Me and Frank are next to each other. He walks in. He sees the Lego box, which is to my left, right? And it was there next to a couple other Lego sets. And I sold one. I didn't sell the other one. I sold. Uh, I had this SpongeBob set that I picked up that wasn't totally complete, but it had the figures. And I think I sold it for like ten bucks uh, to someone. And I had a Star Wars set for sale. So this guy goes to pick it up, and as he picks it up, he, he goes, uh, "Oh, he goes, oh, it's a, you know, it's just a box." And I said, "Yeah, it's a, it's five bucks." I said, "It's like a twenty-year-old set, you know, but it's just a box." And then he starts laughing at me. He starts laughing, and he's like, "Oh, are you selling just a box? <laughs> five bucks?" And and I'm like, "Yeah, you know, it's just a box. It's not the set, you know." So I go to him. So he starts laughing. But it's like, it, I could tell, Frank could tell too, because Frank was annoyed too. It wasn't a laugh like, oh, it was a mistake, I picked it up. It was a derisive laugh like, how dare you charge five bucks for a box? So I say to him as he's walking away laughing, I said, well, you know, what do you want to pay for it? Like, what's your counteroffer? You didn't have a counteroffer. He was annoyed that he had to walk like 10 feet to pick up an empty box before he realizes it. And it's not like if I, if, if he, if I said five bucks and he picked it up, I was trying to trick him because it's not like you could uh, trick someone into buying an empty Lego box um, when they're thinking it should be full. Unless you don't know what weight and what something feels like a full Lego set versus not. I don't know what his problem was. But the guy leaves, right? He leaves. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of fucking weird. And he walks away. Um... So then he walks by again about 15 minutes later, and he's holding a, a Lego set. He's holding a Lego set. And now he walks by with it, and he starts mocking me as he's walking by. Again, this is like a 55-year-old grown-ass man. He's walking by with a Lego set. He goes, oh, yeah, it's for five bucks. This one has actually has stuff in it. Oh, oh, like, oh, what are you doing? And it was so fucking weird that he was openly mocking something that really did not deserve to be mocked at all. And I was nothing but nice to the guy, even after he was laughing at me. But now I'm fucking annoyed at this point. I, I, I'm i dehydrated, haven't eaten anything. Day's going okay, long day. I don't gotta take this shit, I really don't. Uh, so I walk off uh, to the edge of the, the tarp area. And I go, I, what, what exactly did I say to him? I said something, I said something to the effect of, um, I said something to the effect of, like, like, I'm not sure what your problem is, but you know, if you really wanted the box, you should have made an offer on it. Or like, like what, like basically to, to the effect of that, like, like what, are, what is there to be like, like, like what's the problem? Like what's, what's the big deal that you're fucking doing right now? You know, I was agitated. I wasn't, being mean to the guy still, but it was basically almost like, 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 what are you doing? Like, like, what are you, like, why are you messing with me for at this point? I wasn't trying to swindle you to buy a $5 Lego box that was empty. Like, it wasn't a swindle job. And, but then I realized at that moment he was just a fucking scumbag 
who was going around trying to find Lego systems for cheap, and that's what he was, being that he had another Lego set in his hand. He's a scumbag seller that thought that he can get a $100 uh, set off me for $5. That's really what he was probably upset about at the time. Um, you know, And honestly, if I had that $100 set, I probably would have sold it for like $40. You know, So he would have won anyway. If you bought a $100 set for 40 bucks. he would have won. Um, so he, he, he's gone and Frank's even like, Ooh, that guy's kind of weird. And it takes a lot to get even under Frank's skin. Uh, but even Frank knew it was really weird. But then the asshole comes by a third time and he walks by and starts like, he starts motioning to like all the boxes, like he's going to pick stuff up to mess with me or something. Um, and at this point, I'm just like, ah, fuck it. I don't care. I said, yeah, you're a really fucking happy person. You're really, you're really, uh, you know, a nice person, really happy with your life. Yeah, have a good one. And he, and he, as he's walking away, he goes, oh, yeah, it takes one to know one. Gives me this hack reply. That's right. Basically call him out for being a miserable fucking piece of shit. Um, and of course out there you can say, okay, it's not worth it, but I'm sorry. You fucking mocked me not once, twice, but three times. You're going to fucking hear it. And uh, with his hack response, I realized he had nothing to offer anyway. He couldn't come back to me. And he wasn't going to turn around and come back. Uh, it wouldn't have ended well for him, uh, either verbally or if he was dumb enough to do something physical with me. It would not have ended well. Uh, especially with Frank's in there. Frank would have killed him even before I probably would have. <laughs> but, um, but now, out there, now I'm going to look out for you at the swap meet uh, for my next Flea Market Madness. Because now you're going to be the new Wario. I'm going to look out for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess with you if I have the chance. Uh, this uh, older gentleman who's just a piece of fucking trash uh, trying to start something with me for no other reason just to be a fucking dickhead. Some fucking guy who's probably uh, miserable whose wife probably left him, left him 10 years ago. Uh, Alright, that's all it is for that. So at the end of the day, the flea market experience, it was interesting to be on the other side of it uh, from the selling perspective. Uh, but it's not something I want to do again anytime soon. It's it's different when you're selling at a... At a uh, retro game festival or expo because you know that people are there to buy the stuff you're bringing. At a flea market, it's a crapshoot whether or not you're going to bring stuff people want. Assassin's Creed did horrible at the box office and got awful reviews. So Assassin's Creed came out December 21st. So when I'm recording this, we are two weeks into its release and had a production budget of $125 million. Marketed everywhere, so we're talking probably $200 million overall sunk into this movie. And domestic total has been $42 million. Uh, foreign, 44 It's only made back $87 million. When to break even, it's probably got to hit about three to $400 million. Ain't going to happen. This movie's a bomb. Which is a shame because it's another failed, another failed uh, video game movie. I always feel like with these games, like with Warcraft, they're made five, six years too late. What's interesting is that, though, this has Michael Fassbender as a producer. He's one of the biggest, hottest actors out there. Because he's cute. No, because he's a great actor. So he's on this. Jeremy Irons in this. You know, this is a real movie. This isn't a fucking U-Bowl direct-to-DVD freaking video game movie like Postal or whatever. This is a real movie. Uh, probably should not have been released in December. Star Wars killed everything in December, which didn't help as well, obviously. That's obviously, you know, uh, 
not good when it comes out a week after Star Wars. You know, that's, you know, they're not going to win. But this did not get, get any good reviews either. So it's not even a critical success. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, what we got on Rotten Tomatoes? 17%. The average rating among the critics is 3.9 out of 10. Critics consens- consensus is Assassin's Creed is arguably better made and certainly better cast than most video game adaptations. Unfortunately, the CGI fueled end result still is a joylessly overplotted slog. All right. One of the main criticisms we had in the build-up to this movie is that the news was that the majority of this movie t- took place in modern day and not in the Renaissance with all the, you know, Assassin's Creed action going on. And when you're playing these games, that's what you want to do. You want to assassinate people, you know, in Italy, in the Renaissance. You don't want to be in the fucking uh, Total Recall machine talking to fucking doctors and creepy scientists. But that's what this movie turns out it really is. Um, uh, one reviewer. Assassin's Creed mistakenly assumes that the plot is the most important element of its source material. Actually, it's the least. Uh, I suppose you could say the film made me slightly more likely to play one of the games, but only because i do just about anything before I saw the movie again. Obtuse, narratively incoherent, and ultimately frustrating, it stands as another example of how hard it is to make a good mainstream movie out of a popular computer game. Oof. In the game-to-film genre, which includes such memorable disasters as Silent Hill and Hitman 47, this is yet another disorganized, incoherent, nearly unwatchable entry. Uh, the game's premise is unsuitable for mining dramatic tension, a waste of star power, and your time. Forget the th- 3D glasses for Assassin's Creed. They should hand out blinders and earmuffs. Assassin's Creed makes Warcraft look like an Oscar winner. It takes itself entirely too seriously. It abandons everything that players loved about the game series. So you have a, uh, a movie made where they take this plot. They t- it sounds like they... They take the fun out of the experience, which, again, is just like uh, running around killing people in stealth-like fashion in the, in the Renaissance, and they're making a plot-centric movie. That's just a mistake. I mean, what's I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. So they were planning to do a trilogy for Assassin's Creed at this point. I don't see that happening. This movie's a bomb. Um... It sounds like a borderline embarrassment. Like they said, it makes Warcraft look Oscar-worthy. And Warcraft didn't even get that bad reviews in comparison. Um, Well, actually, it did slightly better, 4.2 out of 10. But it did better with the critics in terms of 28% versus 17. Okay, that's still not good. But Warcraft, remember, uh, Warcraft did well in China, which was a saving grace. It bombed in the U.S. But Warcraft did all right. Uh, in Asia. So, it's not a slam dunk there's going to be a Warcraft sequel uh, because they're not sure that it's it made enough still. Uh, Alright, so, uh, da, 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 da. Warcraft did $430 million world worldwide, according to this article. Uh, it might lose money overall, but that doesn't necessarily rule out a sequel. See, uh, with, with a movie like that, the danger, though, is that when a movie doesn't Turn a, a, a either doesn't turn profit at all or a big profit, and they greenlight a sequel. That means the sequel is going to be cheaper than the original, and that's bad news for the scope of a movie, uh, or the effects budget, or the length of the movie. You can't do the same sort of movie cheaper. 
you know, to make a profit. That's the danger. You know, you ha- you do this epic Warcraft movie, but now you want to do a trilogy, but the movie didn't make enough money to really carry it in the same scope. That's not a good, good either. So, I mean, at this point, can we get a, an excellent uh, video game movie at this point? I mean, is it possible? What did what did Prince of Persia that do do well? I, I don't think that made that much money, but. I, I don't remember that being that bad of 36% on Rotten Tomatoes, 5 out of 10, right? So it got an average review overall. Or excuse me, average rating, but still not great. I don't know what it's going to take. I, I just don't know. I, I think at this point, you're you're more likely to get them taking a video game, like just the, the name, like Grand Theft Auto, and then just doing an entire story and plot that has nothing to do with the game it's based upon. Just run with your own sort of theme because it's getting harder and harder to not just replicate the same sort of feelings from the video game experience when you're playing because a movie is different than a video game. It's a different medium. But it's getting also harder to interest the game audience enough to get them all into the theater because if they can't do it with Warcraft, you know, what can you do it with? What was the only one they kind of did it with uh, recently? Well, actually, now I think about it, Angry Birds. But Angry Birds doesn't really have a story so they can create their own story and then appeal to kids. But that still didn't get good reviews. That was 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. Did that make money, though? Let me see. Angry Birds. That was an animated movie, so it doesn't actually, doesn't actually count. I mean, any kid's going to go see an, angry, uh, an animated movie. So, all right. So angry, angry Birds did $107 million domestic. And it did $350 million worldwide. On a $73 million budget. So that definitely turned a profit. Even before merchandising and everything else. That definitely did a good profit. Angry Birds. But again. They could have made that movie. Without there being a video game. It was, in this case it was almost just. Uh, a coincidence that there had to be. You know a video game based upon talking birds. That, that fly at each other. And fight off pigs. You know what I mean. Like you could do that movie without a video game. So that's almost like. I, I, I That almost doesn't matter. I can almost guarantee you that. Those kids watching that movies, most of those kids didn't play that game before, or, or a chunk of them did it. That was just the, you know, the sort of the matinee that their babysitter or parents took their three and four year olds to, you know, that weekend, you know, because Angry Birds hasn't been uh, a huge game for for the past like four years. It sort of just trailed off more and more, you know. But that, maybe that's what it is. Again, maybe that's what it is. You just have to sort of license out the name and do your own fucking story, and don't expect or or don't count on. The, the, the game audience to fill the theaters. All right. Uh, Q&A time on the CU. Actually, it's not a Q&A time. We have a scumbag. Seller of the week. 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 This scumbag seller of the week is Dream Lives On, who is selling illegal counterfeit reproductions of Sega Dreamcast games, including hard-to-find titles like Ill Bleed and uh, Power Stone 2. So I'm going to click on Ill Bleed here. So he's selling these. The, the seller is, uh, at least in the description, saying reproduction. Please read description. All right. Let's read the description. This is a reproduction copy of Ill Bleed from the Dreamcast. I strive for my reproductions to be of the highest quality. I use the highest quality CDs commercially available. Art is printed directly to the disc, so the label is smudge-proof and even waterproof. I do not use cheap stickers or low-quality print CDs. 
Insert labels are 3,000 DPI scan prints on quality photo uh, paper. The game plays like any other Dreamcast game. No modifications needed. Just pop it in and play. Disc-only version is available for $18. Oh, right. Okay, so they're taking pride in the fact that this is going to be a harder reproduction to tell apart from the authentic ones. That's great, I guess, right? Right? All right, Ill Bleed's a game that's selling 90 bucks. Uh, complete and this guy's selling uh, counterfeit versions for 25 bucks and even has the little even has the same style this is bad the same style of see-through on the spine you know how it's like uh, oh it's uh transparent then it says dreamcast uh there that's even the same i don't see repro i don't see it anywhere on the cover art repro on the disc I don't see Repro anywhere on the disc on that either. Uh, let's see on the Neo Geo one. If there's Repro on that. Da, 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 da. Well, Neo, oh, that one never came out in the U.S. at least. Okay, let's check the Power Stone 2 uh, one. Yeah, Power Stone 2. That game's gone up in value a decent amount. That's about an $80 game. Some people want more than $80 for it by now. 120 I think that's insane but uh, okay does the does that one have repro on it from this person let's see power stone 2 power stone or is the power stone taken down the power oh, the power stone 2 was sold that's why great all right let's look at the power stone 2 the power stone 2 one Let's look at the cover of Power Stone 2. Sorry, I'm kind of being slow here, but I'm trying to navigate. Nothing with reproduction on Power Stone 2. Nothing about it. Another $80 game. The only saving grace, though. There is a saving grace. You're not getting the the manual totally printed. You're just getting an insert, but the disc looks exactly the same, and so does the case. All right, so this guy's selling uh, some homebrew stuff as well. Um... Half-Life, which was never commercially released on the Dreamcast. You can get a repro of that if you want. At least with that, it's not a fucking game you could buy. But, uh, yeah, Counterfeit Power Stone 2, uh, Ill Bleed. Uh, I'm not sure if some of these other ones ever came out here. But, yeah, this is just... Don't, yeah, come on, man. Just, just don't do it. Don't fucking do it. At least on a, at least on a Dreamcast disc, though, you can look at the actual inner ring to see... If it's different, but just fucking just, just come on, just don't. Q and A time on the CU podcast. Uh, this is from at Johnny Falcon fifty. Hi Pat, as a kid, did you get excited about the release of the SNES at all? Oh my god, I was super excited. So remember, the Super Nintendo was like the first sequel to the movie, the first movie you ever saw, basically, because the NES is like the first major console. So the Super Nintendo, I, I remember. Originally in Nintendo Power, you saw what the Super Famicom looked like. You're like, holy shit, a controller with four buttons instead of two? You know, it's different color scheme. It looks high tech. I was jacked for the Super Nintendo release. Absolutely released. Uh, excuse me, absolutely excited for that release. Uh, in the build-up, Super Mario World showing pictures of that. I remember that being a huge one. Showing pictures of uh, Act Razor was big. Uh, I think I remember seeing pictures of SimCity. I remember, and I remember uh, Super Castlevania seeing pictures of that and being like, "Holy shit, we're in for a ride, aren't we?" 
And remember, that was fall of 91. And the console comes out uh, that fall. And remember, in that fall, there was only a handful of games you could get still. But then it comes out that Christmas, and I spoke about this. This is where, you know, art imitates real life, or at least inspiration comes from it, real life, uh, in my Sega Master System Christmas episode, was that I was forced that December to sell almost all my presents that I received, including Rostan for the Master System, in order to afford the Super Nintendo. The good news is that I remember getting the, the Super Nintendo at 6th Avenue, which was a chain, which I'm not sure is around anymore in New Jersey. 6th Avenue Electronics. But they had it cheaper than anywhere else. Because the MSRP of a Super Nintendo when it first came out was like $200. And for some reason at 6th Avenue, they only had it for uh, like 180 which was really weird. And they maybe had it like as a you know, a door buster or something. So I got it for cheaper, but yeah, I had to sell like most of my other toys I got when I was like 11 years old. I don't remember the toys I got anymore. Besides that Rastan for Sega Masters, and that was one I definitely uh, had to sell at the time, which was a shame because I fucking loved that game, but that was like probably still like a $40 game in 91 or $30 or whatever, so that was a chunk of it. But I remember selling uh, some of the other stuff in order to uh, get that, but I was jacked for the Super Nintendo, which is why it's such a shame that I never I never stuck with the console as much as I should have. I only had about, you know, 10 games for it overall. Uh, Super Mario World, Star Fox, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, F-Zero, uh, Stanley Cup Hockey, uh, Tecmo, Super NBA Basketball, and like one or two others. I didn't really have a huge amount. I rented a lot, though. I rented, I rented a lot of games for the Super Nintendo, but again, it was kind of hard being that, you know, uh, I was getting bigger into the PC games. Couldn't afford it. I had a small allowance. Parents didn't buy me a lot of games on on their own, so I couldn't really ask for games for both Super Nintendo and then also on the computer. But I did play a lot of Super Nintendo at a friend's house. I borrowed some borrowed some games. I remember I remember renting Ninja Gaiden trilogy. I remember renting like you know Turtles Tournament Fighter. So I I got my licks in when it came to the Super Nintendo. But no, I was I was like through the roof for the uh, Super Nintendo uh, when it was uh, announced before it was released. Uh, this is from at Papa Ken Media, who asks questions from time to time. Do you have any big time, maybe far fetched goals for 2017 with the podcast channel, etc.? Well, if you listen to the full podcast, which is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean directly, uh, I brought this up at the beginning of the podcast. Which remember, people on YouTube, this is part of an audio podcast, much larger audio podcast that's cut up. But 2017, I want to sort of branch out into non-video game content more and do some more video game content, but <clears throat> I will start up a separate uh, podcast that'll venture more into non-gaming elements, more talking about stuff going on in my life, maybe some social topics, more political stuff going on, something that doesn't fall under the purview of the CU podcast, which is more retro and modern games, and um, more talking about sometimes pro wrestling stuff on the CU podcast and movie stuff. I wanted to be able to talk about whatever I want to. I think I have more to offer uh Hopefully you agree. More to offer than just talking about video game stuff. You want to know more about me, my personal life, uh, maybe some experiences I, I've had in the past, uh, good and bad. Uh, hear me vent about stuff. Maybe try, you know, try to be funny about certain topics or experiences that I've had. Uh, talk about girlfriend issues, romantic woes, things that have happened to me. Can't do that on the CU podcast. I don't think you guys want that here, but 
maybe some of you guys want to listen on a different podcast. And it'll be uh, maybe twice a week, uh, once or twice a week, 45 minutes, where I'll just I'll just free ball it on a few topics, but uh, and I'll take more questions about people asking about maybe what I went through in high school or college or maybe experiences with other YouTubers, whatever else, stuff that won't make it on the CU podcast. I think I want to do that. I'll be writing more this year. I'll be working on the Super Nintendo uh, guidebook. Uh, I'll be writing more uh, or working on more stuff with the app. Not necessarily that's for the channel, though. I do want to do a different video game show, maybe focus more on playing through games. So maybe not necessarily like a, a, a Let's Play, but I'll play through an entire game, maybe with some commentary. So if you want to see me maybe beat Contra, I'll record myself beating Contra, then comment maybe as I go on certain spots. You know what I mean? Like um, spots that are troublesome or or things that to look out for or whatever. Thoughts about the game. Maybe I'll talk about my experience with my mom buying me Kung Fu by accident instead of buying me Contra. She got it confused. Whatever. I want to do something like that where I can get the content out. It's more video game content. And you guys want to see that. Uh, so let me know if that's something you want to see. Uh, and then also in terms of having a different podcast and topics, I'll probably do what I'd never want to do and start a new channel to do that just so that this one stays more about video games in general and the CU podcast and I'll have the separate one for the what's probably going to be the, the podcast with Pat Contry. That's probably what it's going to probably be called uh, the new podcast when I get that going. And that'll be probably solo and I'll probably have guests in that every now and then and the CU podcast will stay with me and Ian if he comes back healthy. Uh, so I'll have those two different podcasts. And who knows, maybe I'll do a third one down the line. Because you know, podcasts are at least easy to get get out there. Not a lot of editing involved with the audio part with that. More so if you cut it up for YouTube, then there's something involved with that. Um, in terms of other writing, I, I might have a writing project with someone else that might get started this year. There's no guarantee. Uh, but yeah, that's what's going on with my life and the channel. Uh, I'll still do Pat the NES Punk videos. I'm working on one right now. By the time you see this, it hopefully will be out. If not, it'll be out soon. Uh, and I still have ideas for that. Uh, for the, for that down the line. I don't have a huge amount of ideas remaining, but there's some ideas uh, for that. And then Ask Frank will remain as well. Uh, the uh, Frank Cranks will happen less often, but they will still happen. Uh, so we'll see what else happens. I'm going to try to work smarter this year and more efficiently for sure, but um, I want to also sort of make sure that YouTube isn't c- controlling my life entirely. I, I am also a writer on the side. I am a podcaster. Um, maybe I want to try to get into comedy more. We'll see what 2017 brings. It's going to be a year of changes. Um, I'm going to try to have more fun in my life as well. Maybe that'll be me going on Twitch more and just playing games and you guys watch me a bit. Maybe not as a job, but because I want to start enjoying life a little bit more. The last couple of years have been rough uh, professionally and a little bit personally. It's gotten better personally, which I'll talk about more in the podcast with uh, Pat Country. But uh, we'll see what happens with all that. And maybe I'll do, uh, you know, I'll get into game development later in the year or something once the NES app is sort of in a good final uh, state there. Let me know in the comments what you want to see on this channel or from content from me in general. What do you want me to see me write or talk about on another podcast or anything else? What do you, where do you, want, where do you want to see me go? You want me to, maybe you want me to go away entirely and I'll just do that. If you pay me enough, I'll, I'll, I'll go away. All right. Um, and that's all for now on the CU podcast. Oh, no, we got no, we got no more, one more. Actually, you know what? I'm fucking done. I'm tired. I am done for now. I'm going to save that one for a later uh, podcast. Um, if you want to listen to the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean, 
uh, please do so. It, it helps support us. There's also a podcast, Patreon. I have my own Patreon as well that I'm going to be doing more on. As well, for example, the podcast will be on uh, my Patreon exclusively for the first day or so before it goes elsewhere. That'll be a more of a perk for my own Patreon since my Patreon hasn't been ignored, but I definitely could do more with it. That's for sure. And, um, yeah. So, um, I'll, again, I'll be at the... Uh, so, Retro Gaming Expo, February 4th and 5th in Ontario, California. Use uh, promo code CUPODCAST to save 10% at SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com for pre-order of tickets. Um, also, look for the ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, NES guide app. It's on iOS. It should be on Android any day now. By the time you hear this, hopefully it's on there. I just hit my funny bone. Ow, that hurts. Um, yeah. And hopefully Ian gets better, and hopefully he returns to the podcast. So uh, with that said, I will see you in a couple of weeks, uh, where we'll be talking about the reveal of the Nintendo Switch, which is happening, I believe, about 10, 11 days from now. So that'll be the big news coming up in mid-January. I will see you uh, later, everyone. I hope your 2017 is, uh, is a nice one. And uh, as bad as you think 2016 is, every year has its ups and downs. Uh, celebrities and people die every year. Um, social media just makes it seem like it's worse than it actually is because it's easier to get that information shoved in your face and have more of an emotional vacuum, you know, in terms of the magnification of the, of the feelings and emotions through, through social media. So if you're really sad, you should really probably get off social media because it probably won't make you feel that much better if you're in a bad state to begin with. So that said, we're going to lose more people in 2017. Bad stuff's going to happen. Bad stuff always happens. But, you know, but good stuff happens too. So let's try to focus on the positive and move forward uh, with your personal and professional uh, goals. Uh, try to, you know, have fun. Maybe have a new hobby. Try to put yourself out there. As Frank says, try to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. You never know what can happen. You'll probably discover something about yourself that you didn't know before. Or maybe you start enjoying something else new. All right, I'm going to st- uh, stop pont- pontificating. That's for my new podcast I'll be doing uh, that more. <laughs> All right, good night, everybody. <laughs>